Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com. He this podcast includes discussion of self-harm and child sexual abuse. Please listen with care. Kia ora, ko uli mai tēnei, nau mai whakarongo mai ki te hipi pāngo. Hi there, I'm William Ray. Welcome to Black Sheep. This is the second in a two-part series on Charles Mackey, the fast-talking, energetic, ambitious mayor who led Whanganui through its boom years in the early 20th century. As we mentioned in the last episode, Mackey's mayoralty came to a scandalous end on May 15, 1920, when he attempted to murder a 24-year-old returned soldier called Walter Darcy Cresswell, who was threatening to out him as a gay man. In this episode, we're going to look in more depth at what happened the day of the shooting, the theories of what drove Darcy Cresswell to blackmail the mayor, and what happened next. Towards the end of last episode, we told you that Cresswell survived the shooting, and within a few weeks he'd recovered enough to give a three-page statement to the police. This statement was later read in court and published in the newspapers. So, to start this episode, let's hear what Darcy Cresswell had to say for himself. I am a returned soldier, 24 years of age, and reside with my parents at Timaru in the South Island. I've done no work since I returned from the war. I came to Whanganui on Monday the 10th and met Mr Mackey on that date. Darcy Cresswell said he was introduced to Charles Mackey by his cousin. Mackey had done some legal work for Cresswell's relatives in the past, so he knew the family even if he hadn't met Darcy personally. Mackey and Cresswell seemed to have hit it off. They caught up for another dinner a couple of days later without the cousin, and Mackey invited the 24-year-old for an after-hours tour of the newly completed Sergeant Gallery. One of the major exhibits at the Sergeant was a copy of an ancient Greek statue called The Wrestlers, featuring two naked men, well, wrestling. Many historians, including Paul Diamond, suspect Mackey might have shown Cresswell the statue as a way of figuring out if this former soldier was maybe interested in a little wrestling himself. We introduced Paul in the last episode. He's researched Mackey's story for the last 18 years and recently published a book, Downfall. The destruction of Charles Mackey. And it's um it's such a fantastically homoerotic statue, the, the wrestlers. Whether or not Cresswell picked up on that hint, he clearly had some suspicions about Mackey. And it didn't take long for those suspicions to be confirmed. When we left the art gallery, we went to Mr Mackey's office in Ridgeway Street, and while there I discovered a certain disgusting feature in Mr Mackey's character. Interestingly enough, Cresswell never really elaborates on this. He doesn't explicitly say what he discovered about Mackie or how he discovered it. He sticks to a sort of vague innuendo. One thing he mentions is that Mackie showed him some photos of naked women. 
This was apparently a tactic gay men in the early 20th century used to gauge the interest of a potential partner while keeping a sort of plausible deniability. Anyway, presumably something Mackie did made his feelings clear. The implication is he made a move on Cresswell because Cresswell continues, On making that discovery, I told him that I had led him on on purpose to make sure of his dirty intentions. And I told him, also amongst a lot of other candid things, that he must resign the mayoralty at once. He then pleaded for mercy and asked me to think over it for the night and come and see him next morning and let him know my decision. Cresswell agrees to sleep on it. But the next morning, the day of the shooting, Saturday the 15th, he returns to Mackey's office and says his mind is made up. Charles Mackey must resign as mayor. Cresswell says Mackey continues to try and talk him down. The whole morning was spent by him in pleading with me on account of his wife and family and not to force him to resign. I, however, was quite determined that he should resign. Even though he threatened to commit suicide, I did not believe he had the courage. You get the image of Mackie at this point as just utterly desperate. He told me he was suffering from a complaint, which made it impossible for him to control his passions, and said that his doctor could satisfy me in that respect. He rang up his doctor on two or three occasions, but each time the doctor was out. He became very earnest about his decision to commit suicide and the absolute impossibility of resigning the mayoralty. Cresswell seems to have felt some sympathy for Mackey, or at least he wanted to appear that way when he wrote his statement. He said, I was anxious to be quite just to him. I should say here that I had promised to say nothing about what I had discovered if he would resign at the end of the week. I did not want to judge him, but I was determined he had no business to be mayor. By this point, it was about one o'clock in the afternoon. Cresswell had been talking to Mackie for hours, and he'd had enough. I, being very tired, took a more determined stand about it, and threatened that if he didn't immediately resign at the end of the week, I would at once wire to my dad and Timaru to come up, as I felt it was getting too much of a strain on me alone. He seemed so terribly upset that I extended the time to a fortnight, and he then asked for a few minutes alone to clear his head or something of the sort and went into the anteroom. A few minutes later, Mackie came back into the office. He said he'd sign the letter if Cresswell extended his deadline from a fortnight to a month. Cresswell agreed, Mackie signed the letter and handed it to him. Then they both walked towards the door. Before reaching the door, Mr Mackey suddenly turned around and I found he had a revolver pointed at my chest. We were only a foot or two apart. I think he said, this is for you, but I am not positive. Then he fired. I felt the bullet enter my right breast and I fell down. In the echoing silence that followed, Mackey stooped down and placed the revolver in Cresswell's hand. Presumably he was trying to make the whole thing look like an accident or maybe a suicide. But Cresswell was not dead. Immediately I got the revolver. I rose to my feet and kept him covered. He looked very surprised and wild and then ran through the door. 
Criswell tried to give chase, but Mackie slammed the door behind him and either locked it or held it shut. I did not wait to see, but ran into Mr Mackie's office to the window facing Ridgeway Street and threw a chair through it to bring assistance. Help! I've been shot! Mr Mackey, hearing my calls for help and thinking that he couldn't escape, came back and asked me to shoot him. Chriswell says he refused to pull the trigger, but then Mackey rushed at him. Chriswell pointed the gun away from Mackey and... purposely fired the remaining rounds into the walls and ceiling. The next thing I can remember was running down the stairs and telling someone that Mackey had shot me. And I heard Mackie say over the stairs that he had shot me by accident. I don't remember much more. Charles Mackie would later admit the statement was basically what happened. But he gave a bit of a caveat. He said, Insofar as it relates to my actions, this statement is correct. As Paul Diamond points out, that's not the same thing as saying things happened exactly as Cresswell said. And the more I think about that statement, I think, that's really odd. Um, Mackie's saying, well, it's reasonably true about what I did, but, but it says nothing about what Cresswell did. I mean, so, what, so, so it leaves open the question for me, but what about the other guy? The only other person who could tell us what happened in the office is Mackie himself, and he never told the story. Or at least if he did, it hasn't been passed down to us. And part of the reason Paul Diamond is a little suspicious that things played out exactly the way Cresswell said is because there's a dimension of this story which we know today that very few, if any, people knew at the time. Darcy Cresswell was himself either gay or bisexual. Later in life, he'd have several relationships with other men. I asked Chris Brickle about this. He's a professor at Otago University who specialises in the history of gay and bisexual men in New Zealand. He was almost certainly aware of his own homosexuality some years before this. And as Paul and I discussed, when you show someone some photographs and then you, you you try and get them to make a pass at you, he knew what he was doing in that encounter. It's tempting to see him as a real villain in this piece. He seems like this, you know, awful hypocrite, traitor kind of person in, in some in some ways of telling it. Uh, do, do you have that view of him, or do you think it might be a little bit more complex than that? I want to think it's more complex, but it's hard not to have that view, isn't it? Especially when you realise that he was actually blackmailing the mayor and trying to get him to, to stand down using the shame of a sexuality which Creswell himself shared. So, yeah, I want to not see him as a villain entirely, but it's a bit hard. Paul Diamond, however, is a little sceptical of this more villainous view of Cresswell. He spoke to some people who knew Cresswell and read the writings of contemporaries like Frank Sargison, the famous New Zealand author who himself was a closeted gay man in the 1920s. I've seen more than once written that Cresswell wouldn't have necessarily accepted that part of his makeup himself. Hmm. And I think that's an important point. And also, lashing out at someone who is doing what you're doing, but you're not happy about it, is, is not an unfamiliar thing in counselling. Hmm. Sometimes people who are being very vocal about opposing gay rights turn out to have something in their own background that they weren't being upfront about. 
The other thing we need to consider is that Darcy Cresswell was a war veteran. In 1916, after being wounded by shrapnel in France, he was diagnosed with shell shock and discharged from the army due to a mental breakdown. It's easy to imagine that four years later, when he met Charles Mackey, Cresswell might still have been suffering some kind of post-traumatic stress. But then again, his actions after the shooting seem to show relatively cool, clear thinking and actually a pretty extraordinary degree of mercy. Cresswell finds himself on the floor, holding the gun Mackie has just used to shoot him in his hand. But he doesn't shoot Mackie back. Even when Mackie charges at him, he points the gun to the side, fires off all the rounds. He effectively disarms himself. When I did my tour of Mackie's office, I had a covert look around to see if I could spot any bullet holes, but they must have been patched over. I asked one of the organisers of the tour, James Barron, what he thought had motivated Cresswell, and he had an intriguing theory. I I suspect he was being blackmailed. Maybe maybe the best way to... um, deflect attention from yourself is to point at someone else. Mm. Uh, wouldn't have been the first time that process has happened. So maybe the blackmailer was himself being blackmailed. But if that's true, that means there's some kind of conspiracy going on here. James Barron and his fellow Mackey enthusiast, Lisa Rewiti from the Whanganui Regional Museum, put it like this when they hosted the tour. And sorry in advance for the deafening cicadas in the background. Yes. So someone put him up to it. Yeah. And my suspicion would be uh, most likely the RSA. Remember, in the last episode, we mentioned Charles Mackey had a big fight with the RSA over the plans to host the Prince of Wales in Whanganui as part of a worldwide royal tour in 1920. The RSA didn't think those plans included a big enough role for returned servicemen, especially given the tour was in honour of the soldiers who'd served in the First World War. The Prince ended up forced to attend two different concerts, one organised by the RSA, the other by Mayor Mackey. And the whole thing turned into a disaster when the power went out halfway through the mayor's concert and an unruly crowd stole all the leftovers from the official dinner. Yeah. Uh, and they accused me of being all disorganised yeah. and stuff like that and um, seemed to do it properly. And the whole thing went tits up. Yeah, then. and that's when everything exploded yeah. a couple of days after that war visit. Yeah. There was clearly bad blood between Charles Mackey and the head of the Whanganui RSA, Wilson Gordon Woods. Just two days before the shooting, Woods made some accusations against the mayor, although they had nothing to do with his sexuality. As the Whanganui Chronicle reported, Mr Woods alleged that the mayor had uttered disloyal statements regarding the prince and also the king. Statements of that nature were unbecoming and personally he resented them. These days, most people wouldn't bat an eyelid at someone slaying off the royals, but back in 1920, that was a serious accusation. Wilson Gordon Woods clearly disliked Charles Mackey, and if he or one of his allies at the RSA found out the mayor was sleeping with other men, it's not hard to imagine they might have used that against him. So are there other potential masterminds for a conspiracy against Mackey? Well, you don't get to serve as mayor for as long as Charles Mackey did without making enemies along the way. But try as he might, Paul Diamond couldn't find out 
any details about who specifically might have tried to use this blackmail as a scheme to oust Mackey? It's hard to really understand the the dynamics of the politics then. And by the time I started looking at this, there really wasn't anyone I could talk to. There were people who were children then. There were people you know, whose parents were involved in these things. Several people Paul talked to thought there probably was a conspiracy against Mackey, but nobody had any proof. And maybe the reason there's no proof is because there was no conspiracy. Chris Wall might have just heard about Mackie being gay or whatever was going on in Wanganui and just took it on himself. The picture I get when I read about Chris Wall is that he was a bit of a impetuous sort of hothead and he would, could sort of rush off and do things. And maybe this is why the two men kind of got on when they met. They obviously were, had quite strong personalities. Maybe, like Paul suggests, Cresswell was lashing out due to conflicted feelings about his own sexuality. But there might be more to it than that. Potentially, Charles Mackey wasn't just a victim of early 20th century prejudice. He might also have been involved in something we'd still consider a serious crime today. Paul first came across this possibility when he found a government report from 1927 outlining the facts of the Mackey case. Their summary of the case is not the same as what Cresswell said. Instead of following what Cresswell said in the three-page statement dictated from his hospital bed, this report referred to a second statement from Cresswell two years after the shooting. This second statement has never been found, so we don't know exactly what it said. But the government report sums it up in brief. It appeared that Cresswell had discovered that Mackey had been guilty of indecent practices with young men. But how young were these young men? It's hard to say. The report isn't specific. But Paul Diamond's book outlines a possibility that Mackey might have been involved with people as young as 14 or 15. While researching his book, Paul spoke to a friend of Charles Mackey's youngest daughter, Josephine Duncan. This friend told Paul that Josephine had believed her father was part of a wider group of men who molested boys at a Whanganui secondary school. Although Josephine was only six years old at the time of the shooting and never had any contact with her father afterwards. So even if she did say this, she might just have been repeating a rumour she heard. Then there's a few other things Paul came across. It was this weird statement in the New Zealand Times where they said it is understood that certain other discoveries have, made by, have been made by Darcy Cresswell and certain people have shaken the dust of Whanganui off their feet. Now that's a phrase from the Bible and it either means you're leaving in disgust or you're leaving before you get caught. And it comes from the part of the Bible that has the reference to um, Sodom and Gomorrah. Mm. which when I thought about people in 1920, they would have known their Bible much better than we do. And again, there might have been some subtext in, in using that kind of phrase. Again, it's all hearsay and rumour, nothing definitive. It's, it's a bit of a patchwork of bits and pieces, but it does sort of build a sense of some, perhaps something else was going on and that Mackie wasn't the only person involved, but perhaps was the person who took the rap for it. I guess one of those things that where it's like... it cannot be excluded, but it also can't be proven, right? That's sort of where you get to with this. But 
on reflection, the way the town reacted to handling the trial and the cases, the court cases, I wonder if that helps explain the sort of sense of civic shame and it, it kind of was seen as a, it besmirched the town, you know, not just the reputation of one man. This is a theory where we have to tread carefully because as we all know, there's a long and nasty history of queer sexuality being falsely equated with paedophilia. But at the same time, there's also a long, nasty history of the rich and powerful abusing their position to get away with sexual crimes against vulnerable people. Then we have the added complication that our ideas about homosexuality, criminality and age of consent are very different today than they were in 1920. In modern New Zealand, we have a very clear rule. People under the age of 16 cannot legally consent to sex. Male or female, gay or straight, makes no difference. But as Chris Brickle points out, in 1920 there was no age of consent for men. And there were very different ideas about when and how boys transitioned from children to adults. What often defined at that point the distinction between a boy and a man was whether he, whether a male was able to earn an income or not. In 1920, an awful lot of young people left school at 13. It's difficult to wrap your head around these old-fashioned views of childhood and adulthood, especially when it comes to sex. We live in a world where the age of consent, and consent in general, is the central way we decide which sexual behaviours are acceptable. But that world did not exist for queer people in the 1920s. Sex between a 30-year-old and a 32-year-old was illegal, and so was sex between a 30-year-old and a 15-year-old. The law made no distinction between those things, and so it was less of a clear-cut phenomenon drawing a boundary around what was acceptable age relations and what was unacceptable age relations in an era when it was all unacceptable. So the law is important too, I think, in defining boundaries and defining acceptability. I mean, you're saying the law doesn't see a distinction, but did you do you think society saw a distinction? I mean, they both were seen as wrong and you know to, yeah. sinful um, yeah. but was was one seen as as a as like a worse form of some judges did see sex between adult men as less of a thing but in new plymouth prison the prison authorities made no distinction between men who were admitted for having sex with other men and men who were admitted for having sex with adolescents. That there's no sense in any of that material that those were seen as two separate groups of men. In terms of popular newspaper accounts, I can't really see a distinction obviously there either. That would be the first distinction we would make nowadays. But it's, it's, it's way, way less clear when we look at the 1920s, 30s, and even even the 1950s. We could keep going down this rabbit hole of different morals and different times, but the point I'm trying to make is that if Charles Mackey was having sex with people under the modern age of consent, it was happening in a very different historical context. I'm not saying that makes it okay, but it might not have carried the same implications and judgments for a man in his day as it would today. 
And partly for that reason, I'm a little sceptical that Cresswell blackmailed Mackie specifically because he was having sex with adolescents, and not just because he was attracted to men in general. That distinction probably wasn't as important to New Zealanders at the time. Anyway, the fact is, we simply do not know what really happened here. Could be a conspiracy, could be Cresswell acting alone, could be something else completely. All the people involved are long dead, and if anyone still knows what happened... Well, please email Paul Diamond. He's been digging into the story for 18 years now, and it would be nice for him to get some clear answers. Anyway, let's set this mystery over motives aside and look at what happens next. On May 27th, 1920, only 12 days after the shooting, the trial of Charles Mackey begins. The charge? Attempted murder. The prosecution read Darcy Cresswell's three-page statement. They read the testimony of the three men who came to Cresswell's aid. They read the testimony of the police officers who responded to the shooting. Mackey gave no defence. He simply said, I plead guilty. The next morning, the sentencing hearing began before Supreme Court Justice Sir Robert Stout. Mackey's lawyer, William Treadwell, stood up and said he had two duties to perform in court that day. Firstly, to exonerate young Creswell from any blame whatsoever. No blame could be attached to Creswell, and the action he took would be commended by all right-thinking men. Which I guess just speaks to the attitudes of the time. And what Mackey's lawyer said next speaks even more to those attitudes. For a number of years, the accused has been suffering from homosexual mania. I am justified in saying it is heart-rending to think of the efforts that the accused made to cure himself of the trouble with which he was afflicted. He consulted doctors and metaphysicians, and I shall submit to your honour reports from these gentlemen. A metaphysician seems to have been something similar to a psychologist or therapist. I've seen old newspaper ads where they offer quote-unquote mental healing but it sounds like some of them might have been kind of con artisty because I've also seen newspaper articles where they're being sued for not curing people. Anyway, the report from Mackey's metaphysician showed the mayor had been wrestling with his attraction to other men for at least six years. Dr. C.E. Mackey, in August 1914, acting on advice of his medical advisor, came to see me about treating him for obsessions of homosexual nature. He was in a very worried and depressed frame of mind and said if I could not help him, life would be impossible. He had treatments intermittently until the end of November 1914. He then stopped the treatments because he said the homosexual ideas were gone and he felt quite all right again. I've treated other cases of homosexual desire with success. The two chief causes of relapse are alcoholism and neurasthenia. Neurasthenia literally means nervous exhaustion. In those days, it was thought to be a major cause of mental illness. For the last few months, as we know, Mr. C.E. Mackey has had a great mental strain and worry, and I'm sure if this had not been so, this trouble would never have come to pass. An important thing to understand here is that in 1920, very few people understood homosexuality as an identity, as something you were born with. It was often assumed that any man could become attracted to other men, and these feelings might come and go. Men actually having sex with other men was generally seen as a kind of moral failing. Maybe you could compare it to cheating on your wife. It was something you did. It wasn't who you were. Anyway, Mackey's lawyer argued that because his client was in the grips of this quote-unquote homosexual mania, 
he wasn't really responsible for his actions. When the actual shooting took place, the accused for the time was absolutely unhinged and did not realize the seriousness of what he was doing. Your Honor, in the name of that compassion for the faults and frailties of others, I ask you to temper justice with mercy. Ironically, Justice Robert Stout may have been more open than most to this kind of argument. Stout was one of New Zealand's foremost eugenicists. He believed things like addiction, mental illness and sexual crimes mostly happened due to some kind of inherited predisposition. We've talked about New Zealand's history of eugenics in a previous episode, so look that one up if you're interested. In any case, as open as Stout may have been to a medicalised view of homosexuality, he didn't buy Treadwell's argument that Charles Mackey had been out of his mind when he shot Darcy Cresswell. The attempt was not an impulsive act, as the placing of the revolver in the hand of young Cresswell showed. I've been asked to exercise my functions with compassion and mercy. I always strive to do so. But it must be remembered that this was an attack on human life. The accused has been labouring under a sad affliction, but I will have to impose a heavy sentence. Justice Stout announced Charles Mackey would serve 15 years in jail with hard labour. He was taken away and locked up in Auckland's Mount Eden prison. And the hammer blows kept falling. Mackie became bankrupt. His wife Isabel divorced him and seemingly cut off all contact. Neither she nor their three daughters are recorded visiting or writing to Mackie in his time behind bars. About a year and a half into his sentence, Mackie was agonising over the lack of contact in a letter to a friend. I don't want to trouble you, but if you could write again and let me have some news of my children, I cannot tell you how pleased I should be, or even about Belle. God knows I tried to be a good father. I haven't even had a photo of them. A handful of people stuck by Mackie. His siblings, his mother, some of his friends from the legal community. But they were the outliers. Pretty much as soon as he was locked up, the town Charles Mackie had served for more than a decade began a systematic effort to erase him. James Barron. I find the term erasure actually far too mild for it. Erasure's something your teacher does with a chalkboard, if you old enough to remember chalk, um, or a dry, dry marker. But um, it wasn't a razor. What happened with the foundation stone is, is a better word for it. It was chiselled off it. Charles Mackey's name was removed from the foundation stone of the Sergeant Gallery. His name was also taken off a street named after him. Jellicoe Street in Whanganui East was once Mackey Street. His official mayoral portrait was taken down and destroyed. And this wasn't some kind of brief moral panic. Charles Mackey was literally written out of history. There was no mention of his achievements and services and official histories of Whanganui for more than 50 years. As late as the 1960s, historians were being warned off the story. By and large... Wanganui just forgot it ever had a mayor called Mackey. Yeah, and that's, that's just wrong. Charles Mackey probably wasn't aware all this was going on. In those days, prisoners had very little access to newspapers and they weren't allowed to write or receive letters referring to their crimes. 
but other queer people in New Zealand did see all this happening, and it's kind of heartbreaking to think what that might have meant for them. If you imagine yourself being a teenager or, or you know any age really in 1920, and you you read a headline about the you know the what's what's the headline? I'll grab it here. Mayor Mackey, malefactor, exposure of putrid practices, shoots return soldier Creswell, um, which then goes on to, in the text of it, mention homosexuality. That's probably the first time you saw mentioned what you, at some level, identified that you were. Mm. I guess that must have been a mixed message. It's like, firstly, it's like, well, wow, um, if they can get someone who's at that level, he's a lawyer, he's a mayor, and he can be brought down, um, well, I'd better be careful. At the same time, there's another message in there. It's like, oh, wow, he, homosexuals can be mayors. They can be successful. Mm. So, yeah, it, everything about this is, is a complex, mixed yeah. story. It would be easy to imagine Charles Mackey utterly falling to pieces in this situation. But that's not what happened. Paul Diamond went through Mackey's letters from prison, and they paint a picture of a man with deep resilience. The tone is quite amazing. It's there's not any self, very little self pity. Hmm. There's a lot of concern for other people, an engagement with what's going on in the world, because those letters were his lifeline. With very few exceptions, Mackey's letters from prison were enthusiastic and optimistic. He even gave tips on surviving prison life. The great thing is always to fix your mind on the coming Saturday when you get your weekly shave and hot bath, your weekly set of clean clothes and your mail. The Saturday shave out in the big yard is quite the social event of the week. Quite quite remarkable, and I guess that's where you see his character as mm. someone who, you know, was knocked down, but, but um, don't, don't write him off yet. We should remember Mackey's correspondence was censored by prison authorities, so he may not have been totally free to say how he really felt. But there was at least one person he could bear his soul to. Blanche Bourne, a poet, author and a co-founder of the New Zealand Howard League for Penal Reform. In 1924, Bourne somehow won permission to write and meet with prisoners, including Charles Mackey. Years later, she wrote a book, People in Prisons, recalling the discussions she had with men behind bars. She used pseudonyms from Greek mythology, and the one she used for Mackie was Ateocles, the son of Oedipus and king of Thebes. Ateocles had fought for years against his passions, enlisting all the medical help available, and had been kind to every fellow creature he met because of the real pleasure he took in giving help. He had filled various useful posts with conspicuous success, but had finally to meet exposure, disgrace and prison. Ubi lapsus? Quid fecci? Where have I erred and what have I done? He wrote in bewilderment and despair. I ask these questions night and day and can find no answer to them. The little bits that Blanche Bourne wrote in this book I think are quite telling and she does talk about his homosexuality and she, the comment that I really thought was interesting where she said something like, I have no reason to believe that his practices were any less perverse on his release, which was still empathetic. It's just obviously they got on, but she seemed to me to be saying 
he was still a homosexual man when he left. Charles Mackey was actually kind of lucky. He was imprisoned at a time when New Zealand was making a major effort to reform the penal system, and one of those reforms was parole. And for you longtime fans of Black Sheep, you'll remember we talked about the introduction of parole way back in our first episode about Alice Parkinson. Go check out that one. It's still, it's still one of the best we made, I reckon. Anyway, Mackey's friends and family fought long and hard for his release, and the man who finally made the recommendation to let him out, ironically enough, was the same guy who locked him up, Sir Robert Stout. By that point, Stout was president of the Prisons Board, and just by the way, as well as being the judge at Mackey's sentencing and chairing the panel which decided his release, Stout also acted as the judge for Mackey's divorce with Isabel and had been on the panel which admitted him to the bar as a lawyer. Seems crazy, but New Zealand's early 20th century legal community was a very, very small world. Anyway, in August 1926, six years into a 15-year sentence, Charles Mackey was released, on the condition he immediately left New Zealand and travelled to England. And it does seem to have been a bit secretive, because no one seemed to know about it until at least a month, when Truth broke the story and said, you know, that he'd been sort of slipped out of the country um, with his sister, who I think the family support had a lot to do with perhaps why he was released. His sister was his sponsor and um, agreed to go with him and to help him set himself up in business, which I now think was advertising in London because mm. he couldn't practice as a lawyer. One of Mackey's friends, the writer Hector Belithio, later wrote this about his arrival in the UK. He'd lost everything. His body was tired and warped when he arrived in London, and he was poor. But that same resilience which sustained Mackey in prison allowed him to find a new life on the other side of the world. Slowly, the wonders of England enlivened as blood and smiles came to his melancholy face. One of those wonders of England Mackey apparently enjoyed was the Ballet Russe and its famous founder, Sergei Diaghilev. Diaghilev was gay. Diaghilev was maybe the most famous gay person in the world at that time after Oscar Wilde. And um, some of his ballets are known for their sort of homoerotic themes. So again, it's that sort of association with homosexuality. And apparently, gay men particularly in that 1928 season, just took over the His Majesty's Theatre. And, you know, there was wall-to-wall men and ballerinas weren't really getting applauded. It was all the applause was for the men in the, in the production. You know, the Vogue and everything wrote about it. It was quite a, an extraordinary thing. So yet again, he sort of puts himself in these pretty queer contexts. Far from becoming a disgraced exile, Charles Mackey seems to have seized the opportunity for a fresh start in London. And he probably found more freedom than he'd had in Whanganui. Sex between men was just as illegal in the UK as it was in New Zealand, but London was so big and busy that it offered a degree of safety for an underground queer community. This was the corner house, Lyons Corner House, and of course you know that, don't you, because you used to go to the Lily Pond the same as I did. This is a clip from a programme called Gay Life, which was made in the 1980s. The show did several interviews with gay men who lived in London in the 1930s, shortly after Mackie was there. 
This is Gifford Skinner and his friend Benny. The waitresses, remember the hippies? The hippies, they were charming. They always liked the gays, didn't they? They always did, yes. One of the interesting things Gifford Skinner said is that his middle-class gay friends almost never slept with each other. Instead, they'd have sex with working-class men they met in the street, especially soldiers or guardsmen, as they were known at the time. The usual way was to ask for a light, or the time, or something like that, and then you'd chat away, and uh, he'd know what you were after, and the price was two shillings upwards. It was so... Quite easy to get them. Uh, They were more than willing because that was the only bit of sexual pleasure it was possible for them to have. If they were sent abroad, they'd sell their address book to their uh, mate and he'd take over where they left off. And the old queens would give a tip to the one that sold the book because he would say, well, uh, you won't go without. I'll I'll put a, a very nice mate of mine on to you. Oh, thank you very much. Well, here's a little present for doing that. Thank you. And, of course, he, he'd get tips from both sides before he went abroad. <laughs> we know Charles Mackey had a relationship with at least one guardsman. He left all his clothes and shoes to him in his will. In the 18 months he spent in London, Mackie probably lived a similar life to Gifford Skinner and his mates. Hanging out in cafes and bars, cruising for guardsmen in the park, drinking in the sights and sounds of this huge old city. And while he was in London, he would have heard about another city with an attitude to queer culture which was nothing less than revolutionary. Berlin. In the early 20th century, Berlin was the most queer-friendly city anywhere in the world. He moved to the city in 1928, becoming an English teacher and newspaper correspondent, living in boarding houses right in Berlin's queer district. Here's Otago University professor Chris Brickle. I often think about what it must have been like for Mackie going from Whanganui to Mount Eden Prison over to England, where he spent some time there, and then spent time in Berlin, the gayest city on on earth. I mean, not only were there lots of um, cruising spots, but there was a whole cabaret scene, the queer bars, there was an early gay rights movement, male prostitution of, you know, grand kind of scale. I mean, what must that have been like? Berlin was tolerant and vibrant in the late 1920s, but it was also desperately poor and riven by political violence. Hyperinflation had wiped out the economy. Communists, socialists and fascists were fighting in the streets. Part of the reason there was so much prostitution going on is because people had no other options to put food on the table. And ultimately, Charles Mackey became just one more casualty of this deeply unsettled period of German history. On May 1st, 1929, the German Communist Party planned a march to celebrate International Workers' Day. But the Berlin police were not going to stand for that. They were closely allied with the Social Democratic Party, which was engaged in an intense, sometimes violent struggle with the communists. 
they refused to lift a ban on public demonstrations, which had been put in place a year earlier after a speech by Adolf Hitler led to street fighting and left several people dead. Sort of to spite the communists, I think they didn't lift the ban and they said, well, you can't have any street rallies or protests, which was like a red rag to the, um, to the communists. The communists defied the ban and the police cracked down violently in what's since been dubbed Blutmai, Bloody May. In three days of rioting, dozens were killed, hundreds wounded, and thousands arrested. No police were killed at all in the fighting, and the only police that were wounded were ones who shot themselves with their own guns. The dead were civilians living in these two areas where there was a lot of fighting, um, Vedding in the north of Berlin and, and Neukölln in the south. For Charles Mackey, the fighting was actually a chance to earn some money. A reporter for the Sunday Express, Sefton Delmer, hired him as a stringer to cover the fighting in the south of the city while he was in the north. Mackey finished up his work just after midnight and was trying to get home, walking down the road in an unfamiliar part of Nikoon. A bullet from a police sniper hit Mackey just above his hip and punched straight through his body. He would become the 33rd and final fatality of Bloody May. I mean, it just compounds the tragedy, doesn't it? Because it sounds like he'd actually got on his feet. Um, so he was ground down in New Zealand, but then found a space to stand overseas, if only for a, a short period of time, which must have been, yeah, must have been really something for him, I think. Mackie had no family in Europe, so the international press stepped up to organise his funeral. He was buried in St Matthew's Cemetery in Berlin. The newspapers in New Zealand reported the death, raking over the coals of the scandal which had ousted him as mayor nine years earlier. But once that news faded, and as the people who knew Mackie died... The story of this energetic, dynamic man who'd made such an effort to put Whanganui on the map was almost lost altogether. It was only revived in the 1970s and 80s as activists took up the struggle for gay, lesbian and transgender rights. One of their demands was for Charles Mackey's name to be put back on the foundation stone of the Sargent Gallery. It was restored in 1985 although the council at the time insisted this happen with no publicity. And Paul Diamond says it's remained an uncomfortable subject for some in the city until relatively recently. Because I do remember when Prue and I first went to Whanganui in 2004, I think, there was a very definite sense of people from Whanganui did not like talking about this at all. Um, whereas the people who had moved to Whanganui couldn't stop talking about it because they just found it was so bizarre and interesting. The climate up there's really changed, and I, I love the way the town's kind of embraced the story. OK, welcome, and um, have a look around for a minute. And then, uh... One way Mackie's story has been embraced is right back where we started this podcast, Whanganui Pride Week, with that tour of Mackie's old office on Bridgeway Street where the shooting happened more than 100 years ago. I hung around afterwards to see what some of my fellow tourgoers made of the story. This being a Pride event, a lot of the people on the tour were queer themselves, and many said they could see echoes of Mackie's story in modern New Zealand. Well, 
I think, although it was presented as a story of 100 years ago, which of course it is, mm. it actually can still be a story of today. I mean, for many queer people, they're still not really out at work. They're, you know, living uh, a fear. I mean, obviously not the same as 100 years ago. But I think we can't forget the story of people like the mayor because they can still happen and we need to learn and say, actually, gosh, look at this. Uh, you know, what a great guy. But also... We have to be careful it doesn't happen to us again and know our history. That's, that, that's, you know, we talk about Rembo Fano and we need to pull him in and say, he's, he's us. Some even suggested there should be some sort of public apology to Mackey from the city council. That's something that needs to be, mm. needs to be done, because, not because it's some sort of ritual and we're undoing anything, but because it has to be made public mm. that this did happen. And, and, yeah. Paul Diamond says he finds all this new discussion about Charles Mackey Fascinating. We're all making sense of it from our own perspectives and, and, and different generations get different takes on it. The apology idea is interesting. Um, I mean, Mackie did shoot someone. And that's the tricky thing, I guess. Charles Mackie's story isn't straightforward. There are parts which are heroic, like when he stared down that crowd of anti-German rioters in 1915. There are parts which are impressive, like his efforts at building electric tram lines in the magnificent Sergeant Gallery. Then there are the troubling sides to his story, like the possibility he was sexually involved with people much younger than himself. And there's the downright villainous. Whatever you think of Cresswell for blackmailing the mayor, does that make it okay for Mackie to shoot him? But for tour guide James Barron, this just makes for a more interesting story. I I think we really should get past the 19th century tradition of putting people up on a plinth. Mackey, um, his story deserves to be known because it is incredible and what he achieved needs to be known. But um, that doesn't mean that he's... uh, Paying off of all virtue by any means. It's a complicated guy who did what he needed to do to to get by, and some of that's probably not very um, laudable. Big thanks to my guests on this podcast: Paul Diamond, Professor Chris Brickle, and James Barron. For more on Charles Mackey, I highly recommend Paul's book, Downfall, The Destruction of Charles Mackey. And if you'd like to find out more about New Zealand's gay history, check out Professor Brickle's book, Mates and Lovers, A History of Gay New Zealand. If you enjoyed this podcast, make sure to follow or subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or whatever other podcasting app you use. And while you're at it, you might want to check out RNZ's other excellent podcasts. Personally, I start every day with an episode of The Detail, RNZ's daily news podcast, so why not give that one a go? Black Sheep is written and presented by me, William Ray. The sound engineer is William Saunders, and the executive producer is Tim Watkin. Our voice actors are James Kane, Andrew Robertson, Duncan Smith, Simon Dickinson, Max Toll, Melanie Phipps, John Gerritsen, Phil Pennington, and Giles Beckford. Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the award-winning movie Poor Things, starring Emma Stone, Mark Ruffalo, and Willem Dafoe. 
Check out the new documentary, Freaknik, The Wildest Party Never Told, about the iconic Atlanta street party. And don't miss FX's Shogun, a reimagining of the epic tale starring Anna Sawai. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu.